Last year, we were booking uh, flights to Orlando for the pastor's conference, which we just returned from this week. And last year, I was able to find some great tickets, $150 for a round-trip ticket from Philadelphia to Orlando from one of the discount carriers. But a couple weeks before we were to leave for the pastor's conference, the, the carrier changed our departure time on the trip home, and it didn't work out for us. So we called and asked for a refund, asked if they would refund the ticket price so we could just book a flight on another airline. And they explained to us, however, that they couldn't give a refund, that they would only give a refund if the flight, chi- flight time changed three hours or more, but it was over two hours. So... Okay, so, so we left it at that. We, we talked about it, thought, well, you know, maybe we could just use the, the trip credit to book another flight on the same carrier. But it turns out we weren't looking for another flight uh, anytime in the near future, maybe a year later. But so we thought, well, let's, we really need a refund. You know, we don't want to just keep around this flight credit. So called back again. And then, uh, again, we got a customer service representative, and they explained the policy that, you know, it's only if it's changed more than three hours, and there's nothing that they could do about it. So then I asked if I could speak to a manager, if, uh, you know, someone with more authority could give that refund. Was put on hold. A couple minutes later, got to speak to a manager and explained our situation. Hey, you guys changed the flight time over two hours. It's not going to work for us. But then the manager uh, patiently explained, well, there's nothing that they could do that unless the time was changed over three hours, they weren't going to give the refund. Uh, I tried to explain our situation. Uh, The manager acknowledged that it was reasonable, but still the policy was the policy. And then I asked her if she had the authority to give the refund. She said, yes. And then I asked, oh, so if you think this is reasonable, why don't, the, why don't you think you can give us the refund? And then, again, she explained the policy. Uh, but I wasn't going to take no for an answer. So I kept explaining our situation, kept trying to convince her, try to persuade. And then I asked, well, is there someone else I could talk to? And then, and then after being put on hold again, uh, they trans- she transferred me to someone in customer relations, and it was a completely different tone. You know, after I explained the situation that, okay, you guys changed it by two hours, the person said, yeah, we'd be happy to give you a refund. And they completely refunded the, the airline ticket. And it just simply blew me away. I mean, it took talking to three different people, being on the phone for one hour, but it paid off. It paid off. Persistence paid off. In our passage today, Jesus is teaching us as God's people about persistence in prayer. That persistence pays off. And as I reflect even on my own prayer life, uh, it's, it's embarrassing for me to admit that I don't have that kind of persistence that Jesus talks about. You know, why is it easy for me to be so persistent with customer service when, you know, $300 is on the line, but I'm not so persistent in my own prayer life? Why is it so easy for me to spend one hour on the phone to work so hard to get a refund when I find it hard even to pray half an hour? And for, for, for many of us here, why is it so easy for us to be passionate about our favorite sports team? And we definitely notice a, you know, a, a bit of an attendance dip during Eagle season. Not that you know, following the Eagles are bad. But why, is it, why, why, why can we be so per- passionate about our favorite sports team, a favorite hobby, or politics but not prayer. 
Jesus wants to help us. He wants to correct our understanding by revealing in a deeper way who the Father is, the heart of the Father. And once you know who the Father is, the Father's heart, that changes everything about prayer. And the, and, and the Father is the exact opposite, exact opposite of a reluctant corporation trying to maximize its profits. And in our passage today, I want to leave you with this big idea. Persistence in prayer pays off because our Father in heaven only gives good gifts to his children. Persistence in prayer pays off because our Father in heaven only gives good gifts to his children. If you're new to us, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, King Jesus is instructing his disciples on how to be kingdom citizens, how to have kingdom values. And it's a way of life that's completely different from our culture. A standard of righteousness that is far higher, far greater, much deeper than anything we might hear in this world. So, for instance, it's not enough to avoid murder. Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, if you hate somebody else, you commit murder in your heart. It's not enough to avoid adultery. If you have lust, if you look with lust at another person, you are guilty of adultery in your heart. It's not enough to love your neighbor. God calls us to love our enemies, those who persecute us, those who hate us. It's not enough to be religious, to give money or to pray or to fast. We have to do those things for the right reason, not for the praise of men, but for the glory of God. It's not enough to be content with tithing our income. We are called upon by Christ to store up treasures in heaven to live a life of generosity. It's not enough to identify the sins of others, the speck in our brother's eye. We must be ruthless with our own sin to see the log, the plank in our own eye. And Sinclair Ferguson summarizes it this way. No one can follow the Sermon on the Mount up to this point without becoming profoundly aware of his need. We are beggars. We are spiritually short-sighted and undiscerning. We fall so far short of what we should be for the sake of our Lord Jesus. If you've been tracking the last several messages, the last several months in the Sermon of the Mount, you recognize our need. As A.W. Pink puts it, our need for grace, renewing grace, enlightening grace, empowering grace, and sanctifying grace. A.W. Pink goes on and puts it this way, divine assistance is imperative. It's necessary if we are to meet the divine requirements. Divine assistance is imperative if we are to meet the divine requirements. And what Jesus has done up until this point in the Sermon on the Mount is to leave us, to, to leave us with a truckload of divine requirements, and we are at a point where we need divine assistance. Who is sufficient for these things? Who here is able to do the right thing for the right reason all the time and able to turn away from every wrong thing all the time? Well, none of us. These divine requirements, the weight of God's law, God's requirements, leaves each one of us helpless. And we don't like that. We like to be in control. We like to be the master of our fate, the captain of our soul. But in reality, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus has taught us, has showed us we are shipwrecked and we're desperately clinging on to a piece of broken wood. We're not in control of our fate. We're, in the, we're at the mercy of the divine king. 
And that makes perfect sense for Jesus at this point in the sermon to insert these particular verses, these passages. This passage shows us what to do when we have spiritual need. We need to pray. We need to seek out divine assistance. And the more that we see our need, the more desperate and the more persistent we are, the more we see that we need Christ. We need the Spirit. We need the Father. Persistence in prayer pays off. Because our Father in heaven only gives good gifts to His children. And you realize the the greater need for those good gifts, the more desperate you are. So let's look at verses 7 and 8, Matthew 7. So follow along as as we'll be diving deep into these uh, verses here. Verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone... Who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus lays out three commands, ask, seek, knock. Ask is a reflection of our humility, reflection of our need. People who are in need, you ask. Think about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Both of them go into the temple, they're both praying, but the Pharisee doesn't ask for anything. He simply takes his time to pray and tell God what a good person he is. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee, he's not asking anything from God because he doesn't need anything from God. He's getting along just fine without God. But the tax collector, he doesn't even lift up his eyes towards heaven, but beats his chest and cries out, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. See, that's the posture of every child of God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So that's ask. People who are in need, they ask. The word seek is a reflection of our desire. It it has a little more than ask, perhaps an active pursuit. So, So we don't simply ask for a deeper knowledge of God's will. We need to seek it by reading his word, studying his word, through fellowship and through obedience to his commandments. So ask and seek and then knock. Knock is a reflection of persistence and our presence, basically saying, hey, I'm here, I'm in need. You knock on a door that's closed. You knock when you are outside and you want to be inside because there's something that you need and you're not going away until you get what you need. And so there's a, there's a rapid-fire pace to Jesus' commands. You know, these three words, this ask, seek, knock, they build on each other. It's a crescendo. And these, these three verbs are actually imperatives. They're commands. So King Jesus commands us to be persistent. But not only are these imperatives, not only are they commands, they're in the present tense, which means there's a continual aspect. It's not just a, a one-and-done deal. Oh, I asked. I'm good. No, it's a, it's a keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And here's the reason why we continue and we persist. The reason is that God responds. See, if the Father didn't answer, if He didn't hear, if He didn't care, well, then it would be a waste of time for us to ask, seek, and knock. It would be a waste of our time and our breath. But Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. See, the Bible promises results, promises it will be given. 
you will find. It will be open. It's so important. It's reiterated in the next verse, in verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So everyone who asks receives. That means if you are in the category of those who are asking, if you are an asking person, then you are in the category of the receiving person. If you are an asker, then you are a receiver. But this does raise a very important question. Does the Bible give us a blank check? Does, he guarantee that, does the Bible guarantee that we can ask wherever we want, no matter what we want, and God is automatically going to give it to us? Is that what the Bible promises? I mean, we've heard this passage quoted in that way before. Is God some kind of cosmic genie, and is prayer just a, a fancy way to rub that lamp three times so we can get whatever we wish? Is God this cosmic fairy godmother who's ready to wave a magic wand and give us all that we want? God, make me win the lottery. It's the Powerball's 500 million this week. Okay, maybe most of us wouldn't pray that way, but God, help, our kid, help my kids to get into a great college and land a successful career. And those aren't necessarily bad requests, but it's not enough for us as God's people to ask boldly. We have to ask rightly. We have to ask rightly. Now, if you remember from several weeks ago, on my message on the Lord's Prayer, you remember the first three requests in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. You see, Jesus isn't allowing, or he, Jesus is telling us prayer isn't a license. It's not a license to gratify all of our selfish desires. It's not a license for my kingdom come, my will be done. See, less than 10 verses earlier in this passage, we see in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And his disciples, we need to be reminded over and over again what our lives are about. We need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And we can so quickly forget and think of God as a genie or as a fairy godmother, Persistence in prayer pays off, but we have to pray the right things. We have to remember that life is not about us. It's about God, His laws, His ways, His purposes, His glory, and that we're hopelessly unable to, do, to pursue those things on our own. We have to remember that God has given us a truckload of divine requirements, and it's impossible for us to meet them without divine assistance. Persistence in prayer pays off, but not if we ask wrongly. And that's the exhortation, the warning given to us in James chapter 4, 3 and 4. You ask, but do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So ask and you shall receive is not an absolute guarantee. If we ask wrongly, we shouldn't expect to receive. And we've seen people in the Gospels ask wrongly. The Pharisees asked wrongly. You remember, they come to Jesus, they ask Jesus to perform a sign. They come to Jesus as a miracle worker, and they want him to perform a miracle. Do you remember how Jesus answered? 
He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given. You see, this evil generation asked wrongly. The Pharisees were basically telling Jesus, you need to come to us on our terms. But Jesus is telling them, you need to come to me on my terms. Jesus was, Jesus, when they requested a sign, Jesus said no. He wasn't going to play their game because he wasn't under their authority. They were under his authority. They asked wrongly. But not just the Pharisees, however, disciples. Disciples even asked wrongly. You remember James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, they come to Jesus asking for positions of power in his kingdom. Hey, can one of us sit on your right hand? Can the other sit on your left hand? When your kingdom comes in power and glory, and Jesus corrects them, he tells them, you do not know what you are asking. So persistence in prayer pays off, but we have to ask rightly. We have to ask God's way. And I want to briefly here give you three principles on how to ask rightly. Three different principles. We'll spend most of our time on the third one, but three different principles. Number one, uh, we have to ask with faith. Ask with faith. Matthew 21, 22. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. If you have faith. Ask with faith. And this is important. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Faith means knowing our need. We've seen the weight of divine requirements in the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen our need. But also seen that God, God is big enough, great enough, strong enough to meet our needs, that, that this God that we pray to is the true God, the living God, and a personal God who's near to us. Without faith, prayer becomes this dead ritual, a dead ritual, and so we shouldn't expect to receive anything if we're just simply going through the motions. So number one, ask with faith. Number two, ask according to his will, according to his will. First John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So you'll see in this passage, there's an unbreakable connection between asking according to his will, our father hearing us, and then we having, we receiving the requests that we have made. There's an unbreakable connection. And the assumption here for God's people is that we know His will. And that means we have to know His word. That means we don't have to pray whether God wants us to love our neighbor or to love our enemy. We already know that. God's already commanded that. He's revealed that to us. In fact, we simply need to pray that the Spirit would help us, would change us, would give us the strength to do that which we have no capability or ability to do. Love those who are hard to love. So we need to ask with faith. We need to ask according to his will. And number three, we need to ask with persistence. Ask with persistence. And I'll spend most of the, our remaining time on this point, asking with persistence. And, we have, and the point here is that we have to ask. James 4.2 reminds us, you do not have 
because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. And this, this is a point, particular point that Jesus wants to drive home here. As children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High God, we have access to our Heavenly Father, and we have to ask Him. We shouldn't just assume. And not just ask, we have to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And many times as, as we pray, and I know, brothers and sisters, that you do pray, it can be easy to give up. It can be easy to, to grow tired and weary or even just lazy in our prayers. It's easy for us to throw up our hands and say, well, I guess it's not the Lord's will. It's easy for us to throw up our hands and surrender when we don't receive an answer right away. But that's not childlike faith. A child, if you're a parent here, you know children don't give up easily when they ask for something, they don't get it right away. Kids love asking for things, and that's part of life. They ask for food. In the first century, that would have been bread or fish. Those would have been standard things that Israelites ate. But our children, they also ask for more than food when they're hungry. They ask for privileges like ice cream for dessert or a trip to the amusement park. My oldest son, Timothy, loves to ask me and my wife different things. He's good at asking. And there was one particular time, I don't even remember what he was asking for, but it was so important to him. He had to have it, and he had to have it now. In fact, as he was asking, he got frenzied when I, when I told him, okay, Timmy, not, not right now. He got frenzy and, frenzied, and he started saying, when, Daddy, when? I wasn't ready to commit, so I said, uh, later, Timothy. And then he said, uh, when, Daddy, when? Uh, let me think about it. Give me a moment. When, Daddy, when? And I didn't remember. I don't even remember what it was, but he was persistent. He wasn't going to take no for an answer. He was like that annoying father of his who wouldn't take no for an answer when asking for a refund from that airline. <laughs> so considering everything that Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point, are we desperate? Are we hungry for God? See, when children are hungry, they don't take no for an answer. They want their food. A starving beggar, they don't take no for an answer. They need to be fed. And the answer, the, and, and this is where we're often put to the test when we don't receive an answer right away. When we don't get an answer, how desperate do we want God to work when, when we don't seem to get that answer right away? A commentator points out when when someone asks for something and a single no is enough to turn them away, what do you conclude? You just give them one no and they give up, they leave. Well, you conclude that they didn't want it that badly. They didn't want it that badly. We wanted that refund from the airline, so we were persistent, kept asking until we got that refund. And as God's people, God's people, we don't give up easily. We don't take no for an answer. We don't, if, if we don't get that answer right away, we press in, we pray, we wrestle with God. Jacob, we know from the Old Testament, wrestled with the Lord all night until the break of day, even to the point where the angel said, let me go. And Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And we see that pattern repeated all throughout the Scriptures, even throughout the book of Matthew. We see people come to Jesus, come to Jesus for healing. They ask him 
for help, Jews and Gentiles. They ask Jesus to raise the dead. They come to Jesus for healing. And even if there's no room in the house, they will climb up on the roof. They'll tear off the roof, and they'll lower their friend through the roof because they're that desperate for Jesus, for Jesus to work, for God's power. And this is where Jesus, in this passage, he, he turns a corner and exposes our hearts and shows, shows us why we fail to be persistent in prayer, why we give up so easily, why when we don't get that answer, we can just throw up our hands and give up. And the reason is we don't know the heart of the Father. We don't know the heart of our God. We don't know who He is. We don't know what He's like. We forget Look at verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks for him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Bread, fish, these are necessities. A parent knows that their child needs basic necessities to survive. These aren't luxuries. This is what they ate in Israel. And here in Philadelphia, it would be hoagies and pizzas. And, and think about how shocking this picture is, right? Uh, little Johnny asks his father for a sandwich, and the father gives him a stone. Or Johnny asks for a pizza, and the father gives him a porcupine. And it's ridiculous to think that, okay? Child's hungry, asks for bread, gets a rock. Asks for fish, gets a snake. It's ridiculous and unthinkable, even for sinful parents. See, no parent in the right mind would do such a thing. Even in this messed up world, sinful parents know how to give good gifts to their children. They know how to feed their children. They know how to give presents to their children. So Jesus is drawing upon what his audience, they already know, that sinful parents know how to give good gifts to their children. So if you who are evil, you who are evil parents, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, who's without sin, perfect in love and holiness, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good things to those who ask. Give good things to his children. Jesus is using this argument from, it's a standard Jewish argument from lesser to greater. And we've already seen this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has reminded his audience, if God takes care of the birds, if he takes care of grass, and you are so much more valuable than birds or grass, won't he take care of you? And this pattern of, of lesser to greater is used even throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. You see, the logic is, is so clear. It's, it's unthinkable, unthinkable for, a, for, the, for the thought of a nursing mom to forget the child that she is nursing. So how much more unthinkable would it be for God, God our Father, to forget his people? And sadly, for us as God's people, as children of God, we can buy into the unthinkable lies of Satan. We can buy into Satan's lies. 
God has forgotten me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't know. God has abandoned me. And we can be tempted in those times of difficulty to think that God is giving us a stone or giving us a snake. And this is a lie that human beings, we have fallen from since the beginning. You remember Adam and Eve, our first, the first human beings, our first parents, they fell for the lie that somehow God was holding out on them. And as you persist in prayer, as you seek God, you can be tempted to think, well, this isn't paying off. I'm not, it's not worth it. Is God really hearing? And you can begin to question, as Adam and Eve did in the garden, you can begin to question the heart of the Father who is in heaven. You can begin to ask, why is the Father giving me a stone? Why is he giving me a snake? And in those moments, church, we need eyes of faith to see beyond the lies of Satan, to see how those thoughts are really unthinkable for our Father. If it's unthinkable for sinful parents to give a stone or a snake, how much more unthinkable is it for our Heavenly Father to give us stones and snakes? We know that fathers, even sinful fathers, don't give stones and snakes. So we know our Father in heaven won't do that. And church, we're just aware of the number of trials you guys are walking through, difficult situations with health and home. And in those moments, you can be tempted. You can be tempted to think, uh, you can be tempted to think, why am I surrounded by stones and snakes? And since the fall of humanity, that, that has been our struggle as human beings, that we can run from God and run to something or something else. And church, we need eyes of faith to see who our Father is, that He loves us. He has given us His, His one and only Son, so, so He can't be giving us stones and snakes. But I want to take a moment here to address those who, are, who may still be running from the Father, who don't know our Father in heaven, as a loving Heavenly Father. You may be here this afternoon, and you, you may not be a Christian. You might uh, be visiting. A friend might have brought you here. Uh, we want to thank you for coming, and we want you to know you're always welcome to come and join our worship services. But you need to know that not everyone is automatically a child of God. The Bible tells us we are born into this world as children of wrath, offspring of the evil one. That means we enter into this world as spiritually dead, separated from God because of our sin. And that separation is impossible to cross because of our sin. You simply need to take a moment to search your own heart to know how you have failed to meet God's standard of righteousness. And the Sermon on the Mount leaves us at a point of total and complete despair that we know that we are simply not good enough to enter heaven on our own. We can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And only when you're at that point of total desperation that you're ready to receive God's grace, only when you see that you are spiritually dead, that you will see that you need God to make you alive in Christ. And that's what God did for us 2,000 years ago when he sent his son, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ came. At, he came to, as a human being to live a perfect life that none of us could have ever lived. And then he died on the cross as punishment, as payment 
for all the sins of all of God's people and then rose three days later. So when you begin to see you are on the outside of heaven and you deserve God's punishment for your sin, you deserve God's wrath, then begin to plead with God for mercy. And when you ask for grace, when you seek for grace, when you knock on the gate of heaven, then God promises that you will receive grace. You will find grace. The gate of heaven will be open to you. And the the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is this. For God so loved the world that he gave, God the Father gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And if you have have yet to come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ, I'd be happy to talk to you, uh, one one of the pastors or the friend who brought you. We'd love to introduce you to the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can have all of your sins forgiven and you can have certainty if you were to die tonight that you would enter heaven, not because you're a good person, but because Jesus Christ has paid for all of your sins. And for those of us who who belong to Jesus and we are trusting in his work alone for our salvation, we we know the Father's heart. We know he has given up his only son. So how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So even though at times it feels like we've been giving We've been given stones and snakes. We know that's not true. We know that's the lie of the devil. There's a brother here who refers to his trials and difficulties as as jewels, as jewels. And I love that because jewels conveys this imagery of treasure, a a family heirloom. And as a family, they've recognized even in difficulty, even in unimaginable hardship, They know the Father's heart. They know that the Father has given them good gifts. They know that they are children of the Father. And church, if we can trust our Father with our eternal salvation, if we can trust Him with our soul forever, how much more can we trust Him for everything else in this life? Spurgeon puts it this way. Our Father, our Heavenly Father Himself knows how to give far better then we know how to ask. He knows how to give far better than we know how to ask. And this can be a comfort for us because often we pray and we only see in part, we know in part, and our giving is tainted by our own sinfulness that still remains. We, we know we don't always ask in faith, that we don't ask according to his will, and we don't ask with persistence. But our good God, our good Father filters our requests and He knows what's best for his children. One scholar wrote, If it were the case that whatever we ask, God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom. Isn't it a liberating thought that we can can ask God whatever we want, but that he will filter that. And in his perfect and heavenly wisdom, he will give what's best for his children. So church, where does our confidence lie? In our ability to ask, in our own understanding, or in the Father's wisdom, His ability to give what's best for His children? The Father in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen in His Son, Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, we were, Teresa and I, we were praying 
about something important. We had just graduated from seminary. We, we didn't know where we wanted to serve. We didn't know if God was calling us back to our ascending church in Texas or if he was somehow sending us on uh, the team that would be launching the church that would become Risen Hope. We weren't sure. We didn't know. We had both options before us. So, so we simply prayed that God would give us wisdom, that he would lead us according to his perfect plans and purposes. And in his divine wisdom and sovereignty, he closed one door, closed that door back in Texas and made it abundantly clear he, that he was directing us towards risen hope. So church, do we ask? The Sermon on the Mount has, has, has humbled us. But has it made us desperate for God, desperate for the Spirit, for God's power, for God's work? Has it made us hungry for grace, for renewing and enlightening, empowering and sanctifying grace? Church, do we see our need for God, a need that drives us to our knees to ask and seek and knock? And I hope and pray that this, that this message will be used by the Lord to renew your faith to pray, to be persistent, to pray and ask for big things, to pray that God would change us, to change our marriages, to bring salvation to our children, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to people around us, to change the course of this nation, to bring revival to our community. But I want to warn you that prayer is hard work. It's not easy. Jesus has called us to a life of discipleship, not to a life of ease, to a life of fighting spiritual battles that begins first on our knees. At the start of his ministry, Jesus went up to the mountain and continued, you remember, all night, all night in prayer. And as he was headed to the cross, when he was praying in the garden, he, his sweat was, became, became drops, of drops of blood. And in Paul's letter, Paul talks about prayer as a, as a striving, as a struggle. I'm reminded again, if, if I'm so eager to persist in a phone call to get that refund, how much more should, should I, should we, should we as a church family, should we persist in prayer to our Father in heaven? So Risen Hope Church, persistence in prayer pays off. Because our Father in heaven only gives good gifts to his children. Yeah, let's pray.